0: One of the things that's frustrated me is I keep being misrepresented in the media.
1: This is Van Color.
2: My name is Mo Amir, and today on This is Van Color, I am joined by a third generation Vancouver civic politician she grew up inside vancouver politics her dad dr walter hardwick was a vancouver city councillor from 1968 to 1974 her grandmother iris l hardwick was the first woman elected to the vancouver park board she herself is a film producer with two decades of success starting her career in the entertainment sector when the bc film industry was very new She has garnered many prestigious accolades, including the YWCA Women of Distinction Award and the 40 Under 40 Award from business in Vancouver just a few years ago. She's also an urban planner who developed Placespeak.com, a location-based citizen engagement platform that has been used by over 100 municipal, regional, and federal clients worldwide, first elected in 2018. Representing Vancouver's oldest municipal party, the NPA, the Nonpartisan Association. She is Vancouver City Councilor Colleen Hardwick. Colleen,
0: how are you? I'm very well under the circumstances, surviving <laughs> the pandemic, as we all are. That's as good as anyone can be, right? Absolutely. <laughs> well,
2: I appreciate you being here. You are a very fascinating figure in Vancouver city politics. In 2019, You were listed as number seven on Vancouver Magazine's Power 50 list, 18 spots above Vancouver Mayor Kennedy Stewart. And you have people like my colleague at CKNW, Bruce Allen, who sing your praises publicly. And on the other hand, you have people who express a lot of outrage against you, particularly online. Your positions are routinely covered in the media to a lot of, I would say fanfare or attention. And I'm not sure if there's a more polarizing figure who is active in Vancouver city politics right now. Do you see yourself that way? Based, based on your expression, I don't think you do. (laughs) Uh,
0: No, it wouldn't have uh, occurred to me actually. No, really? No. I mean, I, I, as I've, I've said many times, I see things through the long lens. I've watched the city change, and I've studied the city over many years.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And w- when I got into to city council, and I had really taken an interest in how things had changed over the last decade, in particular under the, the vision regime. Mm-hmm. And trying to understand uh, where the city is going forward, and my concern is that the city is out of balance, and that has been central to the approaches that I'm taking on a range of issues. Uh, but I look at the city through a, a, a position of knowledge and experience. Uh, so what I say and the positions that I espouse are ones that are coming from that knowledge and experience.
2: So let's talk about one of those very publicized views or positions. I've read in a few places that you've questioned whether a housing crisis, quote unquote, even exists in Vancouver. What do you mean by this? Because I think it gives a lot of people pause because a lot of people familiar with Vancouver who live in Vancouver or who want to live in Vancouver recognize that the cost of housing, whether buying or renting, is not really properly aligned with local incomes.
0: So let's unpack that. Please. So... Housing crisis, is that a crisis of affordability or is that a crisis of supply? They're two different things. And so, um, is there an affordability crisis in the city of Vancouver? You better believe it. Mm -hmm. And you know, that has developed over a number of years and has accelerated over the last five years in particular. If you look, uh, recently we had a presentation from BC Assessment looking at the assessment role in the city of Vancouver. And if you look at the chart that shows the year over year increase in the assessment role, it's striking, um, especially um, from 2016 onward. And the reason is that the city has gone through a phenomenal amount of rezoning. And when you take a piece of land that was once zoned as single family, say it's worth a million bucks, Mm -hmm. and then you rezone it, and now it's worth $10 million. And then you do that over and over again, up and down the Camby Corridor look at at the Oak Ridge developments, mm-hmm. all of these things that are coming online, it inflates the, the value of the land, mm-hmm. Ex, in this case, exponentially. And it is the inflated cost of the land that is really behind the affordability uh, crisis that we, have, uh, that we have to look at. Now, that's not the same thing as supply. If you look around, everywhere you see cranes and land, you know, assembly signs and what i call the orange mesh fence of death we -hmm. see construction and anticipate uh, more and more development all the time and if you look at the cmhc numbers canada mortgage and housing and you look at uh, how many building starts there have been again over the last number of years it's striking and so what i have been looking at is population growth in relation to building starts, for Mm -hmm. example, and looking at what the regional growth strategy has suggested, uh, the long-form census has suggested in terms of population growth and demand versus what the city has been doing in setting its targets, which are more than double projections. Mm -hmm. So there's um, a problem when you start uh, over-zoning, you create... uh, really excess zoned capacity which forces up the value of the land and contributes to the lack of affordability. So, what I've been espousing is the need to Um, have a really hard look at what the demand is. How is population growing, for example? Our population is growing at a 1% per annum compounded annually rate. And that's not happening internally. Um, Anybody that looks at immigration knows that immigration is the primary driver Mm -hmm. of population growth. And if you look, as you know, the census is done every five years. So, if we looked at 2011, the city of Vancouver proper hit 600,000 residents at that time. In 2016, it was up to 632, so, roughly 30,000 more divided by five, 6,000 people a year. Household is calculated on the basis of 2.2 individuals per dwelling unit. Right. So if you got 60-odd thousand people moving in over the decade, the expectation would be that you would need 30-odd thousand new dwelling units, mm-hmm. right? Which is exactly what Metro Vancouver's uh, regional growth strategy says, and it, it attributes 32,000 new dwelling units over the decade uh, to the city of Vancouver as opposed to the metropolitan region. That is in stark contrast to what the city's uh, Housing Vancouver strategy has put forward of 72,000 targets for new homes, as they characterize them. So the question becomes, how did you go from 32,000 to 72,000? And what are the implications? And the implications, if you analyze this from an urban land economics perspective, is that this exponential land lift is increasing the, um, the value of the land, the assessed value, which is calculated on the basis of highest and best use mm-hmm. in such a way that is making it unaffordable to the people that live here. And this has happened in large part because of the, the, the massive difference between the local economy and global wealth and if you again if you look at the number of units that have been built over the last decade i think there were 30,000 units in the pipeline when the housing vancouver strategy was approved so they doubled that number and added 12 to come up with the number of 72,000
1: hmm.
0: without really thinking what the implications were of promoting development in excess of of what would be rationally required It would mean that there would be 100,000 people more than the 60,000 people projected to move to Vancouver over the same period. And so by inflating the cost of the land and the amount of the, the cost for labor and materials that goes up when you have that kind of pressure. I always use the example of the movie business. If it's really busy in town. It's hard for me get, to get crews, right? Right, and ev- and the price of everything goes up. Of same thing here. Um, you are inflating the, the you're you're accelerating the volume of production, and so the costs of production go up. And the uh, the massive amount of rezoning behind it is also inflating the value of the land, and that is important because it prices it out of the ha- out of the realm of local buyers.
2: Sure. And I think when we're talking about local buyers, a lot of what you're saying makes sense. I guess where I get confused is setting COVID aside because it's changed the way the city is composed in terms of international students or even immigration to a lot, of, a lot of ways. When we look at the vacancy rate, I mean, it's always kind of been hovering around this 1% number and rents also seem to be going up, but rents are not based on the purchase of the home or the land value, right? They're based on what's available in the market. And you have things like the speculation tax, you have things like the uh, the empty homes tax. So I'm just confused why rents are also that high and why they continue to go up even during COVID.
0: Bear in mind, first of all, that the numbers that you're looking at for vacancy rates are coming at a CMHC. Right. And they're calculated on the basis of purpose-built rental, meaning apartment buildings. Okay, right. Yeah. They don't take into consideration secondary rental markets. So duplexes, basement suites, rooming houses, even single family dwellings that are being rented out are not taken into consideration in those numbers. Oh, really? Okay. I don't think people understand that, you know, and this is at the so heart of a lot of the So what would the real vacancy
2: rate be around? Well,
0: that's a really good question. And I think that, again, I've mm-hmm. been asking the, the planning department uh, who do have, the, the city has a lot of information on secondary rental markets, for example, mm-hmm. because if you want to run, if, if you want to rent out a suite in your home, you're supposed to have a license to do that. Mm-hmm. And so, um, it is important that when we're looking at things like vacancy, that we are looking across the spectrum of rental, not just purpose built. Right. So I just wanted to set that aside for the moment. One of the interesting things that came out of, uh, as a result, I would suggest of the speculation tax and the empty homes tax, was a report that came out of the CMHC at the end of November. I don't know if you saw it, but it showed that over 11,000 units that had been vacant had been uh, Reintroduced or maybe introduced for the first time into a, the rental market, mm-hmm. and it's typically at the high end, because what has been produced over the last no- decade, in particular, and and longer, has been um, largely marketed overseas. I'm sure you're aware that um, you know the the big developers go over to Beijing, Shanghai, huh. Hong Kong, Dubai, etc., et and set up big. You know, sales outfits to try to to sell all of these places. And they've been very successful mm-hmm. for a long period of time. But with these with the speculation tax and with empty homes tax, they're starting to uh, make those available into the rental market, but at the higher level. okay. so the the competition is really over the lower level affordable housing. And unfortunately, it has fallen prey, in to a lot of the upzoning that's gone on. And this is one of the 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 things that I've been pushing for, and other people uh, like fellow counselor Gene Swanson, is that we need to be protecting our existing affordable rental stock.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: But if you know, if I'm a mom and pop that owns a you know an old walk up, and there's a developer that comes along and says, I can get this re- redeveloped, and you know we can add you know double the density or or whatever on on this place and we'll pay you a big bag of money. Uh, they're going to take that. Yeah, you know of course. <laughs> so that, so they're going to take it. It's, it's it's a business.
1: Yeah.
0: It's a business decision and it's completely understandable, but it's but it's really destroying a lot of the affordable stock that we've got. I remember there was one uh, that we approved, the council approved that uh, was a an old walk up on Oak Street. Uh, down towards the oak street bridge going across to richmond and i think it had 43 units in it most of the people that were living in the building were you know filipino nannies and people that were working in in minimum wage and and or support level jobs and the the pitch came in well we're going to tear it down and build something that's got 95 units in it that are all about five 500 square feet that rent for you know fifteen hundred dollars for a bachelor suite. Right. So the logic was that it made sense to do this because it was going to create more units, mm-hmm. but it was going to displace people uh, that wouldn't be able to find anything comparable that was within their range. Right. And this is why my general remark is that council's job is to balance these uh, competing demands. Uh, and my impression, and one of the things that I have objected to, is that the city is promoting development rather than managing development. And that's something that that uh, I'd like it really to, to think about in a little bit more detail. If you're in the property development industry, you're at the UDI, which is the Urban Development yep. <laughs> Institute, your job is to promote development mm-hmm. because that's how you that's how you make your money. Yeah. Builders got to build, and you, you know whether you're building luxury condos or you pivot into building rental. Yeah, you've it's it's a business. You've got to keep building, and um, I think the notion is that this is this is un- uniformly a good thing, but when you're overbuilding or you're creating the conditions for. Um, surplus zone capacity you're forcing up the value of the landing and increasing again the gap between the local economy and Mm -hmm. that kind of global wealth so what i believe that that city council should be doing is taking more of a job where they're they're trying to look at it through a balanced perspective where we're looking um, at managing the the levels uh, managing development not promoting it's you know it's It's the UDI's job to promote. (laughs) It's the Board of Trade's job to promote their business. That's what they do. It's the city's job really to modulate and balance that. And that's not what I've seen happening. Again, it's part of this criticism that I have about the approach of setting targets, especially setting targets that are double double projections, Uh, because you're creating this almost hysteria that we've got to build, 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 to, to satisfy demand, but there really isn't evidence for that. And um, I this is again why I keep pressuring to get some real decent data so that we can get a better understanding about how our growth should be managed.
2: And I think it's fair to say that not all supply is created equal. It's not oh, just about you know, creating X amount of units. It depends on what those units are, who's gonna live in them. And and here's where I want to go with this. So on election night in 2018, you said that you really wanted to focus on the missing middle in terms of housing, low-rise, multifamily forms of housing, perhaps in single-family neighborhoods, which would imply some rezoning. And I think it also implies that there is a shortage of this type of home. And I'm only speaking anecdotally, but when I talk to friends of mine who have young families, they say, you know, it's really hard to find a place that is spacious, and when they say that, they mean either a spacious two-bed or a three-bed home in this city, and, or just a space that is sufficient for a young family. So, when we see your voting history against a lot of rezoning proposals, I, I'm just wondering, like, wh- where do you stand now in terms of what sort of housing Vancouver needs, and why do we see you voting against rezoning single-family neighborhoods?
0: Well there really are no single family neighborhoods any anymore. Uh, that's a that's a bit of a misnomer. Um, but you hear I, that fact, you hear I, that stat about I, like 70% of the land or 80% are, are <laughs> but but just because people say it doesn't make it true. Well that's why I'm asking you. <laughs> so I don't know if you're aware, but I started a year ago a 50 neighborhoods project where I've been going neighborhood. Every week I've been visiting another neighborhood, now on Zoom, Mm -hmm. but rather than in person. But the purpose of that was to go into each one of those neighborhoods and say, okay, over the next decade, if we're going to add 500 to 1,000 new people or dwelling units to this particular neighborhood, what form should that take? Where should it go? This, you know, and this is the appropriate approach to distributed development or distributed density throughout the fabric of the city. Mm -hmm. It's nuanced by neighborhood. And um, former uh, head of urban design at the city of Vancouver, Scott Hine, developed something called the the livable city DNA matrix, where you look at housing, mobility, transportation, Mm -hmm. uh, community amenities, uh, commercial activity green space, all within the context of the history or character of the neighborhood. And so this is the approach that I've been taking. This is, again, the approach that I think the city ought to be taking. It certainly was its legacy as the poster child for the livable city uh, before it uh, has taken the direction that it did under vision in the last decade. So what I have been trying to do is to draw attention to just that, the need for gentle density distributed across the the city that recognizes. Uh, the nuance of neighborhoods. But um, there's a difference between um, saying that we want to have missing middle um, typologies, which would be ground-oriented architecture, multifamily,
1: mm-hmm.
0: versus the uh, land tenure implications of that. Because as I was describing when you when you upzone a ton of stuff, it mm-hmm. raises the overall value and inflates the to highest and best use, which um, even if you took a single family lot and built a duplex, the house was worth a certain amount with a single family home on it. Mm-hmm. Now it's rezoned, and so it's it's actually doubled the cost. Each each side of the duplex is costing as much as the single family dwelling right. did to start with, because not because that is. probably being separately titled. So, it would be like strata. So, each unit was owned separately, Mm -hmm. okay? And so, um, if the land tenure contemplates intergenerational land, you know, we talked earlier before we started here about how I've got four generations living under one roof. Mm -hmm. Um, What you're trying to do is to keep things in the family intergenerationally and create capacity. That's different than if, if I was to take my place and stratatitle it, um, then say one of the kids decided that you know they were mad at us and they wanted to go and sell off the the floor. Sure. Then it it, it that's a that just illustrates the kind of compl- that the trickiness of doing l- land tenure oriented missing middle development. Yeah. So um, I am all for. Uh, the, the housing typology of missing middle uh, ground-oriented architecture a variety of forms i think it's absolutely uh, appropriate and nuanced i think it's important to be able to contemplate things like intergenerational land tenure what i am keen to avoid though is the the inflationary land lift to highest and best use which is is think of it you know do you know the saying a rising tide lifts all boats yeah that's what ends up happening and then it just makes it even more unaffordable So, the trick is in balancing the two, creating additional capacity. And again, ground-oriented architecture is designed for families in particular.
2: Would you be in favor of like a land value capture tax then to sort of mitigate some of these issues with land
0: left? I'm not persuaded that that's the solution. It's something that I'm looking into and have been considering carefully. Um, but I think what we really need to do is get a handle on where we're where we're sitting right now as we contemplate our our moves forward because what I don't want to see is this continuous inflationary landlift that is making things more unaffordable for people in the city. There's this
2: perception that you are protecting the neighborhoods of rich single family neighborhoods and le- and homeowners. Would you want to see some gentle densification in Shaughnessy or? In- of course.
0: I mean, again, I, I think I've been pretty clear and all of that. You have, but I'm just bringing I, up what I, I've read but, and but, what I
2: but <laughs> what do you perceive think? about you in the media. That's all.
0: Yeah, this is the trick is, <laughs> you know, um, people make stuff up that is not based on any kind of reality and it makes me wonder why i've been thus targeted because it's completely untrue
2: why do you think you've been targeted i,
0: I you know it it's politics right i'm a policy wonk i'm looking at I, i'm a problem solver i analyze and try and find solutions i'm now in a situation where i'm uh, you know dealing with political parties and and <laughs> political one-upmanship and i really don't like it I, i'm it's it's an unpleasant experience. Do you think
2: you're a target of the development industry? I mean, because a lot of what you're saying is very critical of them. Oh
0: yeah, but I mean, it's so funny because I've known—I mean, many of the developers I go back to high school with. <laughs> um, it, it's a, it's a narrative that is—it's it, the nimby yimby dichotomy oversimplification um, that is promoted out there, uh, you know, and it's sort everything this. These days seems to be your, your it's black and white, good and evil us and them, without really considering uh, what's being said.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, the actions of what I am doing is I have been going neighborhood by neighborhood. I did a UBC geography project about five years ago where we, with students, superimposed a series of boundaries, starting with the with the, the city's local areas, policing districts, uh, school catchment areas, BIAs, to um, really get more granular understanding about the composition of neighborhoods and i've used that as uh, sort of the paradigm to go in and meet with all different groups within the na- neighborhoods i'm about two dozen into it mm-hmm. we had that this little pandemic thing put a bit of a wrinkle in it for sure. me but what i have found is that people in the neighborhoods are not against having any kind of development or change they just want it to be se- sensitive and incremental instead of coming in, you know, playing whack-a-mole with, with rezoning, which we see a lot of these days. And, um, you know, the, ultimately what I want to see is evidence-based planning that takes into consideration the nuance of neighborhoods. Mm-hmm. I'm not saying no development, that's absurd, I'm a planner. <laughs> I'm, saying, I'm saying, let's look at what are a reasonable rate of growth that is going to um, be sensitive to the needs of the local economy.
2: Mm -hmm. You've been characterized as someone who says that they're representing constituents, not would be constituents. And in our conversation so far, you've already acknowledged that, you know, immigration is the key driver to population growth. I want you to explain this because this is out there in the ether. Are you advocating for a Vancouver that shuts out newcomers? Of
0: course not. That's, again, that's absurd. Uh, but
2: you know that that's how you can portray But people
0: make stuff up. Right. You know, because it suits their narrative. Um, it, and it's just nonsense. Again, I look at how the city has grown over the years, and I consider um, how the city will continue to grow. Mm-hmm. But I would ask the questions, um, what is driving that growth? So, you mentioned earlier that your family is in the forestry business. Mm -hmm. Well, when I was growing up, Macmillan Bloedel was the biggest show in town. Sure. And so, this city exists because it's the terminus of the railway and it's the western port for Canada. It grew off the back of our natural resource extraction industries. Mm -hmm. But in in the early 1980s, it became pretty clear that the those industries, the shipping of raw logs off and, and et cetera, was um, not going in the right direction, mm-hmm. shall we say. And in 86, we had Expo and invited the world in here. And if you look at, again, the the long-form census data going back to 86, every five years, and you look at, a, like, think of it as a pie chart that shows the the industrial segments that are part of the local economy, you'll see, well, first of all, it was largely driven by the natural resource extraction industries. Mm-hmm. We were selling logs and fish and, and iron ore and other minerals. But then... We went from sh- selling logs to selling real estate the, wh- we, with the sale of the Expo lands on the north shore of False Creek to mm-hmm. Li Shing and, and the Concord De- Pacific developments that came out of that really started um, this major shift that we've seen from resource extraction to real estate property development and construction as the primary driver in the local economy, which is ultimately not sustainable. Um, as a dominating force in the local economy. Right. And I go back and I, I hear my father's voice echoing in my ears where he said, what we really need to be focused on is diversifying our economy and helping with, you know, pu- push entrepreneurship. And by entrepreneurship, I mean the creation of a new good, service, or experience. Mm-hmm. But that's not what we've done. We've been entrepreneurial about selling our land or the air above our land. Um, But there hasn't been a lot of other diversification. Um, I got involved, you know, 35 years ago in the film and television industry in its infancy with the hope that that was uh, an area that we would be able to build. Mm -hmm. Um, We've built it as a service center for American runaway production. Um, But we don't see companies here, uh, by and large, that own the intellectual property. Right. That are So we're like the back lot. <laughs> and if the dollar goes over 80 cents yeah. and we don't have the tax credits, we're not competitive anymore, it'll go somewhere else. Yeah. Similarly, they point to the technology industries. Well, when I, the other one I heard recently, oh, well, Amazon's coming in with 6,000 new jobs. These are American um Multinationals that are coming in and setting up back offices because they can pick up labor cheaper Mm -hmm. and they can get incentives to do it. But make no mistake about it, these are very transportable jobs and can go anywhere, as we've certainly seen during this pandemic, as we've seen the hollowing out of of Silicon Valley, for example. So, bringing this all back to what's going going on, we we have to contemplate where the growth is coming from. But going back to um, your original statement, which was about representative democracy, I believe, um, my point is that we are elected to represent the people within our boundaries as our primary raison d'etre. Mm-hmm. And so, between, so, I'm elected to represent the people of Vancouver. Yeah. Not West Vancouver, not North Vancouver, not Richmond, Burnaby, New Westminster, Vancouver. And so, if I'm going to, I'm going to prioritize listening to my constituents by definition – that doesn't mean that I'm not considering the 60,000 people that are going to be coming over the next decade. I certainly am. But I'm sure but I'm going to base that within the context of the people that are living here now.
2: Sure. Is it Vancouver City Council's responsibility to provide public housing? No. Federal government provincial government how do you see
0: you know I, I look at what my dad was had done with false creek south back in the, the 70s and that was uh, a development that involved a third a third and a third between the, the city the city had the land which was leased land by mm-hmm. the way it didn't give up it, it, its income generation capability um, but the federal government was very actively involved this was back when for older listeners, when Ron Basford was was uh, still in play in the federal government, um, what happened was the feds got out of the uh, uh, of the housing game, mm-hmm. and that has really um,
2: with the Martin budget in the nineties. That was
0: the big mistake, in yeah. my view, is that 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 they um, dropped the ball, and that has had a, a significant effect. So, uh, so it sounds
2: like you're saying the city has a role, but ultimately it's not the driver. You asked of, if
0: it was our responsibility. I did,
2: I, but I'm just clarifying that you're saying they're not totally not involved. They have a role, but it's not well, – they're sure. not the key driver. They're not the key player in making it happen.
0: So I sat on the mayor's task force on housing affordability in 2012. I don't know if you were aware of that. And so was uh, quite uh, – integrally involved in the discussions about the direction that the city was taking with respect to affordable housing and Mm -hmm. social housing. Um, My concern is that the city has a limited land base of assets. And if you go back to False Creek South, that was developed again a third, a third and a third between the the levels of government. And as you probably know from some of the dialogue now that there's a lot, there's concern about the renewal of leases Mm -hmm. that were done well, if you go forward to sort of the 2002 to 2005 period, there was uh, there were 14 city-owned sites that were taken out of the property endowment fund um, to be s- set aside for use in affordable housing. But instead of what was done with False Creek, where they were still generating revenue through co-op leases, in this case, the city CETI, for... For said we'll forego any kind of revenue from those lands for a 60-year term. So we're giving you a, a free lease for 20, 30, 60 years on those sites. And these were largely in partnership with BC Housing mm-hmm. and operated by Coastal Health and, and other organizations. So we went from we're vending in our land uh, for discounted leases to we're, we're vending in the land with no expectation of any revenue because... Because land rent is one of the key aspects of what the city's foundational land relationship is.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Uh, to the point now where, you know, I'm afraid that the city will start giving away land, um, which is very limited. You, you know, once it's gone, it's gone. Sure, And it, it's, it's really counterproductive because at the end of the day, the city's land assets are what it has. I don't know if you... Are you familiar with the Property Endowment Fund? Do you know what that's about? I'm not,
2: no, but I'll let you explain. Back
0: in the day, um, Art Phillips, who who was uh, one of the principals of Phillips Hager North. Well, my dad had been doing really a lot of research about the city's diverse real estate holdings, um, of which there were a lot. And a lot of it went back to the Last Depression, where the city confiscated a lot of land when people couldn't pay their taxes. So Mr. Phillips idea was well we can we can create a financial instrument an endowment and collateralize it with these diverse real estate holdings. Okay. And this gives us a financial instrument that we can then use for doing for doing land assembly. Mm-hmm. And so when they were looking at assembling False Creek because it was a bunch of old leases and in industrial use prior to that and also down in Champlain Heights. So let's create a financial instrument that uh, is collateralized by land, and you can buy and sell land within that endowment, but it has its objective to generate land rent every year. So all the money that is generated every year through the Property Endowment Fund – historically, 50% would go back in to build the fund, and 50% would be used um, at the discretion of Mm council. Now, more times than not, it was just used to keep the tax rate down. (laughs) Sure. Um, But once you start eroding the land base that's contained within that, you stop generating land that does help the city pay for, you know, either Projects, but typically to keep down the operational costs of the city.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: So this is one of my big concerns as we look at the city's role in housing. Um, I'm also concerned about the city, uh, you know, w- where we see uh, bureaucrats aspiring to become property developers themselves, and I'm also concerned about the the empire building that I've been seeing happen over the city in this file as well as others.
2: I want to go to something that I saw on a Facebook page recently. It was the Van Pauly Facebook page. And I know there's a bunch of them, but you posted a comment questioning the need for the Sinaqua development, which intends to house up to 9,000 people. It's all market rental. It's Squamish nation land. What is your concern with Sinaqua?
0: Would you read what I said
2: I don't have it on hand, but you said you said you had concerns about the. No,
0: I didn't. No, I said, have we considered what what uh, is going to be driving the population growth in the city from an economic perspective? Okay. What jobs are going to be driving? Just everything we've been talking about here, Mm -hmm. and this is a classic example about how asking a question, uh, a legitimate question about about population growth, about uh, and about drivers whether what jobs are going to uh, people going to be coming for and it, back to what i was saying you know the, uh, much of the discussion we know what our our uh, immigration rates are
1: mm-hmm.
0: and we we need to understand that as we plan for a develop now i know we have no control over mm-hmm. the snock lands mm-hmm. um, but it does beg the larger question about um, are we are we planning with evidence or are we planning with aspiration? Mm-hmm. So I just asked a question, whether people decide to twist it and, and take it off in their own direction. I was just trying to twist to it. I, I mean, wasn't I think it's, saying you.
2: <laughs> I think it's fair to say that you raised a concern in asking a question. That's how I interpreted that.
0: Okay. As. Well, it is legitimate to ask questions mm-hmm. and it is a, leg- a legitimate question to ask what is driving development in this town? Are we promoting development? If so, why are we promoting development? If we're promoting development in excess of demand and it's inflating the land and making it it unaffordable to live here, then we ought to be talking about that and investigating that.
2: So I think as a regular Joe Schmo, who's maybe part of that Facebook group or sees even that full thread and reads your comments, I would just go... Well, you're a city councillor. Why aren't you telling me the answer to your own question? And the
0: answer is because I've been asking staff to provide the data that (laughs) underpins the Housing Vancouver strategy for two years now.
2: And what's been their delay in terms of giving you an answer?
0: Isn't that an interesting question? (laughs) It's a basic
2: question, right? It
0: is a basic question because a year ago in May, when I first brought forward the motion called Recalibrating the Housing Vancouver Strategy Post-COVID-19, I arranged a 90-minute Zoom call between the Director of Planning and uh, the Head of Housing on the city side, together with a handful of my academic urban geography colleagues, including... Uh, Dr. David Lay, Professor Emeritus UBC, Mm -hmm. John Rose, who did both his master's and PhD with with, uh, David Lay and teaches at Kwantlen College, Um, Andy Yan, who you may know mm-hmm. from the city program. Another was Josh Gordon, although Josh wasn't on the call. And we went in and we talked about the fact that we needed a broad spectrum of data. We were, first of all, questioning these targets, which again are more, more than double projections. Um, but we were looking for secondary rental mm-hmm. market information, zone capacity information mm-hmm. Andy was interested for example also in the in the impact on short-term rentals
1: mm-hmm.
0: um, so we had a laundry list of data that we were looking at that would give us a more complete understanding of the housing picture in vancouver and i kept copious notes i wish i had uh, recorded it um, and I went back and I amended my motion, and I put in bullet points each of the data sets that we were looking for. And it was understood in the discussion that I, we would ask for a memo with data attached as opposed to a report that would require, um, you know, a lot of analysis. Sure. and we said, we don't. We we'll do the analysis. Just make the data available transparently so that we can understand first of all how you came up with the numbers that you've set as goals.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Well, um, that motion passed in May with the expectation that that data would be provided with the memo by the end of July. Well, the end of July came and we got a pdf with no data sets attached of a bunch of findings and interpretation and i have pushed back multiple times asking give it to me in excel spreadsheets give me gis data in shape files where and, and, and when i say me i'm just you know i'm trying to be the pivot or the you know the the point running point on this
2: so this raw data is effectively hidden it's not it's, available not, it's for,
0: not available it's not in the city's open data catalog it's not available and um, it you know we need to know where we're sitting so that we can make the right decisions <laughs> i'm all about evidence-based decision making and when it's when we're told that these numbers are aspirational i ask the question well who's who's aspiring to this why would we aspire to uh, targets that are more than double projections. Mm-hmm. Unless uh, we were aspiring on behalf of the property development industry who want to build more stuff. Right. Just saying.
2: No, fair enough. You're not going to like this next question, but it's one that's come up. And so I want to ask it to you and I'll let you answer it. Okay. Is your concern with Sanaqua related to your vote against the reconciliation report? Because you were the only city councilor who voted against the city's continuing reconciliation efforts with the indigenous population in Vancouver. You were quoted in the Vancouver Sun, calling it a quiet protest. Can you sort of explain your concerns there and if it's related to this (laughs) Sonakwa development?
0: Uh, So... Um, Going back to that Vancouver Sun article that Dan Fermanagh wrote, Dan asked me to come and have a conversation because I had voted against a whole series of uh, motions that had come forward and reports that had come forward. And the reason that I voted, the reconciliation report was just one of them. Mm
1: -hmm.
0: And the reason is because in my way of looking at things, there has been enormous scope creep an empire building in the city over the last decade. What
2: do you mean by empire building? What does that mean?
0: Um, You add 1119 new full-time employees from 2016 to 2020. Mm. That's a lot of headcount. Right, and uh, what I have observed is, you know again, what is a city? What is a local government? It is an a, an entity that's responsible for managing the land within its boundaries. It's responsible for providing core services, roads and sewers, schools and parks, police and fire, a, in exchange for property taxes and user fees. and when it when it wants to build capital projects, build a bridge, something like that, it goes to the electorate and says, Give us permission to borrow hundreds of millions of dollars. Mm-hmm. That's the way cities have run, well, and this is the way this city ran up until Vision. When Vision did their core services review in 2009, um, they introduced CACs, well, they regularized CACs, Community Amenity Contributions, as a revenue line item on the capital budget. Right. So, what that has meant is that. And prior to that, CACs were used very much on a very specific location basis. But this turned it into like a regular revenue stream that is projected out over time. So we expect by promoting all this development that we're going to generate a bunch of money. We're going to get our share of the VIG. And then we're going to be able to use that money to fund, as they would say, uh, the goals and objectives of our values-based organization. Mm-hmm. So what we saw was in, originally the you know the role and responsibility of local government, and then that went into greener city, bike lane, climate change, that that uh, bucket. Then we added social issues, which has is morphed into equity, intersectionality, reconciliation, culture. Da da da. Then we've got economic development. Again, we saw the Vancouver Economic Commission expand in scope and quadruple its budget. And then we've got the affordable housing piece. Mm-hmm. So the net effect on all of that is that we've got our core services here, and then we bolted on these four other categories of, of council priorities, as they're characterized now. Mm-hmm. All of those add a ton of headcount. And with a ton of headcount, we see property taxes going up, and and what we've seen is uh, an increased dependence on development to generate revenue to fund the scope creep.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: So my objection was not specifically about the reconciliation agenda. My. Concern is about the, the the fact that the city just keeps adding on more and more and more stuff um,
2: that you feel are out of
1: bounds of the jurisdiction, outside
0: of the roles and responsibilities of local government. Mm-hmm. So that was what is behind my objections, and of course political opponents take things off in the directions that they want to. And that particular headline, and I never said any quiet protest, that was made up by some editor at the Vancouver Sun.
2: (laughs) And then the second part of that question, just really quickly, it sounds like you're saying that's not related to your question with regard to the Sunaqua development.
0: (laughs) Not even remotely.
2: When I look at the city of Vancouver and you look at the downtown east side and you look at the urban indigenous population and you, the over-representation of indigenous peoples in the downtown East side, I can't help but link it to colonization, residential schools, all of these things. And I, and I think there is that historical link there. But my question to you is, do you feel like the city has a role in reconciliation given that this is happening within the city of Vancouver? Well, we
0: all do. Uh, um, I mean, there is no question, but, but jurisdictionally, um, the federal government is the primary responsibility for dealing with First Nations mm-hmm. by definition, and the land claim situation. I mean, I studied, for example, historical geography of British Columbia with Cole Harris, who quite literally wrote the book on native land claims. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm very, very aware of that, and in my own family, I'm not questioning no, that. No, I'm just no, <laughs> but in my but but it's a question of jurisdictional responsibility. Um, but what I'm talking about is headcount and mm-hmm. and you know. Mon- the money that the city the people of the city are paying out now reconciliation um, you it's it it has it's so profoundly core to everything that we need to do to consider um, my family it's kind of ironic actually my my ex-husband is is status Navajo, and my kids, and so I have a whole big chunk of my family that looked at this and went, "Colleen, what's what the heck is going on? Why are they why are they branding you this way?" And I said, "I I don't I don't get it, except for you know this is the way that we try and demonize our political opponents, but um, you know Vancouver, the Musqueam have been down on the river." Uh, for thousands of years without question. We're dealing with uh, people that were tied to marine ecosystems and highly mi- migratory, and especially the waterfront plays a really important part in in their lives and in their traditions. As far as the urban indigenous component, um, there was never. I mean, I don't know if if people realize there was never a residential school in Vancouver. The closest one was in North Vancouver, and it closed in 1958. So a lot of the the memory is is memory that is brought into Vancouver from other parts across Canada. Um, it's it's always been a, a little uh, hard. To understand for me, uh, when we look at buildings, for example, and say, "Look at that brick building; that reminds me of a residential school." Um, if we, you know, because we didn't have any here, so I'm just, where, where did that come from, and how is that expressed? And the answer is, it's, it's largely come because there has been a big movement and a concentration of people coming from mm-hmm. across the country into particularly the downtown east side. And
2: that's fair. I guess the overarching question that I'm trying to get at is do you see a role for the city of vancouver for city hall in reconciliation efforts
0: um yes but not if it means adding extra departments and extra headcount and extra costs to the city the city is ultimately again it's about land and money mm-hmm. and the activities that take place on it and it needs to be kept in balance and when we see it get out of balance as it is now. The affordability problem in the city is a reflection of it being out of balance. And um, there are things that we can do without adding to um, the financial burden of the people that live here.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: There's often times where you are voting even against your own caucus, and you're either in a vote with uh, Councillor Carr or Councillor Swanson, and and this triad that's kind of been noted occasionally. There's that quote that you said that you even feel like you're in a bizarro world. So if everyone on council is thinking one way, even including the slate that you were elected with, and I mean this respectfully, I'm just wondering, do you ever wonder that maybe the culture or the, the shift has gone one way and maybe you're somewhere else?
0: Well, if being more knowledgeable, uh, uh, you know, about the history and the processes that have got us to where we are, I mean, I I, I don't think I'm out of touch at all. I think I'm just more informed. Um,
2: I'll, I'll be blunt. <laughs> Do you think the rest of council is uninformed?
0: I don't. They... Uh, Councillor Carr has a master's in urban geography. She has relevant academic background, and she's worked and and been in this for a long time. And she un- she has a perspective that comes both from his historical knowledge and from academic and professional relevance. Um, Councillor Swanson's been a- around for a long time. She represents her constituents. Um, my my general remark there, the Bizarro World, you asked me about that. That's from Superman. <laughs> do, do, it's a popular pop culture reference. Oh, no, I understand. I no, that no. It, yeah. it, it just seemed it odd. To, okay. Yeah. I wasn't sure whether you, <laughs> you knew what I was trying to say. Yeah, because it did. Seem, does seem sometimes that things are upside down. Mm-hmm. And it seems that the priorities are wrong. And it seems that we're not. You know, again, I come back to what's my job? My job is to represent the people of Vancouver in making the best decisions about its land use and about the services that we provide. And when I sit through um, endless meetings that are going going off on areas that are really outside the scope of the responsibilities of local government, I find that dystopian. I sit through committee meetings and, and uh, um, you know, council briefings and, and so on, and I, I listen to it and I go, you know, wow, how do we get to this place? And it's not what I'm hearing there, and they describe in the culture of of, this, of the, the organization, it's not what I hear on the street, it's not what I hear in the neighborhoods, it's not the experience of people out there, it seems to, it does seem often dystopian, mm. It's hard to understand for people when we're in the middle of a pandemic and then we hear that, that city staff have, have gotten a raise. I mean, that's that <laughs> blows my mind. Doesn't it blow your mind? Absolutely. So, um, yeah, I do find the decisions that are being made, decisions need to be based on good policy. And when we're dealing with flawed policy um, – it's problematic. And then, you know, my final remark is you have to first read the lines before you can read between them. And, and so, so much of what I've observed is that people, while being well-intentioned, um, can be led down the garden path if they don't know what's really going on.
2: Let's talk about counsel, because you're halfway through your term. You're more than halfway through your term, actually. What letter grade would you assign fellow academic... Mayor Kennedy Stewart in his performance as the mayor of Vancouver.
0: I give him a failing grade. Um, I think the city is in far worse uh, situation than it was when he he was elected, thin with a very thin margin. Um, I had known Mayor. Stewart before in his uh, his uh, role as an MP in Burnaby, and I had admired work that he had done around the e petitions to Parliament process, um, and I certainly respect his academic credentials, but I have um, struggled uh, with watching what's happening to our city. I'm I it breaks my heart uh, when I see again he. Br- brings in and and has these targets these artificial and uh, targets that people are trying to make which to me are just making things worse and promoting a false narrative um, I'm concerned that we haven't done anything to address um, the situation in the in the downtown east side in Strathcona formerly Oppenheimer before that these problems have continued to get worse because starting with the mayor nobody wants to be the grown-up hmm I'm concerned about the money of the, 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 the city. Again, we just approved a 5% property tax increase on top of the 7% one from last year. And oh, by the way, if you look at that budget, it was really a 12% increase because we took the other 7% was offset by $57 million worth of reserve funds. Did you know that?
2: No, I do
1: not.
0: <laughs> uh-huh. There's a bunch of things that I don't think people realize that that are going on and and I have very serious concerns about the financial health and well-being of the city and if the mayor is the CEO of the operation, then um, he I don't think that he's doing a very good job. That's I'll be polite.
2: Setting aside COVID, which I think bleeds into everything else in daily life right now, I would argue that the biggest issue that the city of Vancouver is urgently facing under its jurisdiction is the tent city in Strathcona Park. There was a brutal murder of Usha Singh, a 78-year-old woman allegedly committed by someone who lives or lived in that park in the tent city. I've heard the mayor speak about it, and he's kind of saying it's Park Board's jurisdiction, but of course, people are rightfully upset. I think most people want to see the population in that tent city receive the services they need, receive the housing they need, and it feels like, just as an outsider, as someone who doesn't follow City Hall on a daily basis, the council has kind of sat on its hands when it comes to first on Oppenheimer and now on Strathcona. We know that BC Housing is on this file to help residents relocate into more suitable housing. You've kind of already alluded to this, but it sounds like the city has not done enough. There's not been enough will enough to address what's happening at Strathcona. I mean, you've basically said that the, the mayor hasn't handled this correctly. How would you handle this if you were the mayor?
0: Well, I would have, going back to Oppenheimer, I would have dealt with this a lot earlier because it's just being allowed to, you know, grow and get worse and move around. Um, and, again, I would suggest that uh, the circumstances, notwithstanding the pandemic that have led to this, um, the the city has done a bad job. I mean, I hearken back to Gregor Robertson saying he was going to end street homelessness by 2015. Mm-hmm. I mean, what a joke, right? So, um, we haven't done a very good job of of being grown-ups dealing with a difficult situation. Um, yes, the park board should have got in there right away and, and dealt with the situation. Um, letting it fester and get worse is no kind of solution. Mm-hmm. Empowering the activists – I heard a radio interview over the last couple of days with one of the activists from, from Strathcona, and it was just shocking. Um, it, again, you want to talk about a dystopian you know, value set. What needs to happen is that someone needs to get in there and triage. If there's 200 people, then let's find out who they are. Let's break, you know, are they men or women? How old are they? Do they have mental health and addiction problems? You know, if so, you know, what's, in what way?
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Or are they have, have they been socioeconomically, uh, you know, hurt? I've lost my job. I've been couch surfing. I've ended up in a tent, you know? Um, we need to be able to then go in and figure out what people's needs are and send them in the right direction. Women with children, mm-hmm. seniors. Because there is no one-size-fits-all solution, but we need to be able to direct people. And what's been happening is the camps have, have really solidified and gone inward is that they're preventing any kind of assistance from coming in. Mm-hmm. And um, we've just gone along with it. And as, again, it, it's not going to get better by itself, and, it, and, it, and you're not, it's not going to all happen at one fell swoop. You need to be moving people out. And ultimately, I mean, I I support uh, Mayor Richard Stewart's push to reopen Riverview, for example. I think that uh, going back to the Barrett government, it was a mistake to empty out and, and put so many of our people with mental health issues back on the street because then they just become prey, you know, for the criminal elements, particularly in the downtown east side and in the, the SROs. So there— um, so we should have had an injunction early on. The, the uh, park board should have uh, you know, been grown up enough to do it. I know everybody's well-intentioned, but when you let something fester, it just gets worse. It doesn't get better.
2: So let's talk about that just for a second, because you're bringing up park board again, and
0: that was— It is their jurisdiction, but first and foremost. But like it
2: Mayor Stewart's—you can call it an excuse or his explanation— that, hey, this is Park Board's jurisdiction. We can't do anything until they give us uh, the permission or the authorization you go to, to be the able to do something.
0: There, of course, we could have superseded it if we'd had the political will to do it. But there wasn't the political will.
2: You don't think Mayor Stewart cares about this file?
0: I think he didn't uh, push to get an injun to push the Park Board to get an injunction. <laughs>
2: I guess I'm trying to read in deeper to, to what that means.
0: Well, look, he's not alone. There are other members of council. He's got, again, I, I look at if there's six votes, that's the way it's going to go. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, there's politically there that, you know, there were not six votes to force an injunction.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Is council dysfunctional? We look at four different parties. We look at an independent mayor, quote unquote, I think the city of Vancouver, people who kind of casually follow City Hall, just look at it and and think that it's not working.
0: Yeah, I don't think it's working.
2: Would you call it dysfunctional?
0: Yes. (laughs) Speaking
2: of dysfunction, we have to talk about your political party, the NPA. Oh, yay. (laughs) (laughs) Particularly its board. There have been some interesting characters who are on the board with associations to other fringe political parties, and now they're in the NPA all of a sudden, with associations to fringe right-wing media outlets like The Rebel or Post Millennial. Some board members have posted very vocal conspiratorial views online, and I think a lot of people conflate the board and the caucus, thinking they're you know, it's all related. What is the board's connection To caucus and specifically what's your connection to the board well zero
0: (laughs) nothing i mean mean, there hasn't so again i look at this through the long lens yeah you know as you observe my grandma ran with the npa in the 50s and they were progressive running a woman at the time sure when my dad you know and his cohort formed team um you know when we grew up the npa were the evil empire (laughs) Um, when I, I, uh, when my dad died in 2005, I, you know, I was being persuaded. A bunch of people were saying, "Okay, it's your turn, Colleen. Now you need to step up." And team didn't exist anymore, and so they said, "Okay, well, we'll go to the NPA." And at the time, the NPA had a uh, a real board. Um, this was 2005, so this was at the end of Larry Campbell's tour when vision broke off if you know the the history mm-hmm. this is, and this was the uh, the time in the nomination where Sam Sullivan beat Christy Clark for the nomination right. it was that time okay so they did a really good job I thought in in identifying potential um, candidates they schooled them they had uh, weekly uh, policy boot camps where they'd bring in thought leaders and and educate the candidates and there'd be lots of discussion and debate and so um, and then they had you know a, a big um, convention where people came in by the it seemed like thousands and voted mm-hmm. which built a lot of momentum and you know there was there was really a sense that it was all part of the same team mm-hmm. That went away in the subsequent elections. Um, the, dis- the decisions about candidates were made by the board or in the back rooms, not in an open and transparent nomination process. And I think the NPA has really suffered as a result of that. And we've, you know, so many people have been looking at, rep- at replacing it over the years, and myself included. You
2: know, replacing I think, the party or the board? The party. Okay.
0: Um, Because, you know, when I I ran for the board for the first time about five years ago, I guess, I stood up at the front of the the AGM and said, you know, your brand sucks. (laughs) You don't stand for anything except for being anti-vision and anti-bike lane. Mm -hmm. Elect me and I'll be policy chair and I'll come in and try and do something about it. And they, lo and behold, they elected me. So I came in, and then for two terms, I tried to develop policy. Mm-hmm. Um, again, focused on the areas of responsibility of local government. Let's well, let's look at land use change. Let's look at housing, transportation, et cetera, et cetera. I couldn't get anybody to pay any attention to it because they would say, well, you know, this is the NPA. We don't really do policy. We just Real, who is telling you this? Um, members of the board okay other members yeah. of the board okay you know we have a policy chair but then they had a by election which is when they elected hector bremner and then the school board and everybody mm-hmm. jumped up and down got really excited because it's an election they they mobilize around elections um and then i um, i actually resigned from the board in i guess january of 2018 because mm-hmm. i had i was thinking of running in the 2018 election that fall and uh, I, indeed, I did put my name forward, and indeed, I was elected. But it wasn't – I almost didn't do it because it wasn't an open and transparent nomination process. Oh, really? Yeah. It, the decisions hmm. on who the, the candidates were going to be were made by the board, and that doesn't sit well with me. Um, but, you know, I, I had the feeling that this was going to be a change election, and I wanted to be part of it. So, fast forward to we all get elected. And then there's another AGM in November of 2019, and there was a relatively low turnout because it was in between elections. Um, a lot of people I heard from afterward that were members like were angry. It's like, how did those people get elected? And it was like, well, you didn't show up and vote. <laughs> well, you, you know, they they got the vote out. Yeah. But what what the ended up happening was that there was a a, a slate and then an anti slate, mm. and so what ended up um, was you know I think there was a one vote difference for the for the anti slate, which was largely the the more right wing conservative element right um, and of course, the nPA the way that I envisage it is a coalition between liberals and conservatives that 's the way it 's supposed to be in in my books. Um, and that was not the direction that it was going. So what hmm. ended up happening? Um, they were all, always at a standoff. You know, four members resigned. Then others resigned. The one, and then the the remaining board members were able to appoint, you know, their friends yeah. to, to the board. And so this is how, in my view, it has continued to go uh, further, uh, further to the right. And there ought to have been an AGM in the fall, but because of COVID. You know that's been the the excuse, and frankly, the Societies act and, and the folks in Victoria have enabled uh, organizations to put it off. Mm-hmm. In this case, I think they could put it off till next fall. Hmm. I think it's an enormous mistake because you uh, probably heard that the caucus called uh, for the for an AGM. And I would argue a week it's perfectly possible to have a, a digital AGM. There's legitimate mm-hmm. ones that are being held everywhere. Um, but, but it needs to, uh, I think it needs a renewal. But I just want to clear up for anybody that thinks that there is some like star chamber of rich white, white guys running the NPA board and running the city. Uh, not. <laughs> <laughs>
2: are you embarrassed by the board? Because you're technically wearing the same brand, right?
0: Well, I'm frustrated, and I've expressed this. Um, it undermines what I'm trying to do. Mm-hmm. It calls into question um, my legitimacy, you know. And I see serious problems that are happening with the city. I think we need to turn the ship around. We need, and that's going to involve disrupting the status quo. And it's impossible to do your good work when you're being sidelined all the time by, you know by the kind of shenanigans that we've been seeing going down
2: do those shenanigans include potential lawsuits (laughs) that the board has been threatening or is moving forward on
0: i don't know whether i mean it's who's everybody wants to kill the npa it's so their political competitors want to kill the npa but seemingly even its own members or the board (laughs) want to kill it it's, and I, I'm not talking at a school. This is nothing that I haven't said sure, to, to all of them. That. It's like, guys, you're hurting my ability to do my job. Bottom line, and I, you know, it has to, we've got to fix it. And the only way to fix it is to refresh the board through an AGM. And it should be done sooner than later in order that we can have an open and transparent nomination process for our candidates going into the next election. That's the only thing that gives me hope.
2: Was Councillor Rebecca Bly right in leaving the NPA? And I ask you this because I've seen that some people obviously applauded the move that she left the NPA, while others said that she weakened the ability to influence possible changes of the board. Did she do the right thing?
0: I think she did the right thing for her. I mean, when I...
2: Would you have rather she stayed in the caucus?
0: I think people need to do what they feel they need to do. Um, You know, when I early on uh, again this co- comes back to my objection in the way that client that uh, candidates are selected if they don't even know each other and there's no policy and there's been no <laughs> team building how are they supposed to operate as a caucus and so uh, early on i remember having a conversation with Ruth rebecca and and i said well why did you even run with the npa and she told me that she had been courted to run with the npa mm-hmm. and so she hadn't really had you know, she didn't know the history and hadn't been, um, you know, immersed in in the policy discussions such as they are, and um, so it really didn't come as a surprise to me. I I'm kind of sorry. Um, I I really like Rebecca a lot as a person and uh, agree with a lot. You know, we're aligned. She's she's been a single mom. I've been a single mom. That you know, we have a lot of commonalities like mm-hmm. like that. Um, but the politics of it, you know, can, can be disconcerting anyhow, as far as, as her choice that what she did is that spoke to her and made her feel stronger as a person that was the right thing for her to do.
2: You've really talked about this idea of like policy acumen and a certain history with the city. Do you feel that there are people on city council who are not
0: qualified to be there? Well, that's a really leading question, isn't it, Mo? Well, that's what I do—try <laughs> to get something spicy out of you. Well, I mean, I, <laughs> I know I got in trouble for for uh, for st- stating that, but I, you know, I did an evaluation matrix when I was first elected to try and determine what I had to work with, mm-hmm. and so I, it is important to understand, and I don't think that that's prejudicial, but you know i looked at how how old are they where when were they born where were they born where did they go to school did they go to university what was their major what what's their you know their professional path their career do they have children these are all variables that affect people their their level of knowledge and their decision making because ultimately that's what we're here for is to be making decisions and the more informed we are the better and um so I would like to see a higher level of knowledge of people that are making decisions. Um, you know, when you come in and and you are not familiar with the how the city works, it put, it takes a long time to get up to speed. And I've heard this from other counselors over the years, as you know, my first year was a rookie year, I didn't know what was going on, and then I've gradually got more in in touch. Mm-hmm. But, you know, quite frankly, if you aren't Knowledgeable, then what do you do? You go to staff. And if you go to staff, you're going to, you know, you're, in my opinion, you're going to go down the direction that staff wants you to go down. So um, I, I do believe that council have become educated over this term. We're now more past the halfway mark, mm-hmm. I guess. Uh, but going into it, I would have liked to have seen a higher level of knowledge of what the, the city is really responsible for. Are you going to run for mayor, Councillor Hardwick? I haven't decided yet. You're thinking about it? Yeah, I, I, I am. Um, the, you know, it, it, sometimes it gets really depressing. The state of the city.
2: Does and, that inspire you and motivate you to well, get it, involved, or it, does it? It's
0: a bit of an up and down. <laughs> I just feel, um, you know, what gives me hope. I mean, why am I? I'm not doing this because this is a career move for me. I don't want to be a professional politician. I've had a very interesting and colored career path to to this point. What I'm doing this for is because I'm trying to figure out how I can make it so my family and other families can afford to keep living in the city of Vancouver. Mm -hmm. I got two kids. I got grandkids. Hopefully more on the way, um, and it's just so incredibly important that we we figure out what's ailing our city because it's not a well city and start to turn things around. And and I I look at that. How am I going to do that? You know, the only that's what gives me hope is the ability to turn the ship around, and that means getting a majority on council. It's you know if you if you ain't got six votes, you're dead in the water. Mm-hmm. Um So how do how do we do that? And I you know, I had believed that with the NPA, if it became a true coalition between liberals and conservatives, uh, build a big tent that is inclusive, that's the path to getting a majority on council. And that was the path that I was prepared to to try and give leadership in. Um, so to the extent, that I feel that I can give leadership that's informed leadership, that is motivated by the desire to to help the city get into balance, then I'll do that. I would hate to think that I'd give up.
2: So you're thinking about it, basically. <laughs> There's a lot to think about, Well, I, I just,
0: I look at who else, you yeah. know, who well, who, is, who is in a better, well, but Kenson, um, forgive me is not someone that has a history and, I mean, yeah, he certainly has has been a lifelong resident, but he's never been part of any political activity until this last political cycle. And running, I can tell you up close and personal, that running a city is not like running a business. Sure,
2: yeah. Yeah.
0: I think uh, Ken would have served himself well if he had run for council and got his feet wet and, you know, learned a little bit more about how the city operates before saying that I want the chief executive job.
2: Do you think he was a bad choice in 2018 as the mayoral candidate for NPA?
0: Well, how can you say that? Because he won the nomination. I mean, there was a nomination contest. That had you know three people that ran and he I think it was three and he won so he won fair and square on that nomination. Uh, I always worry about the backroom boy influence, you know. I'll you know that's always a concern in politics. Um, and and again, this is not he's a nice guy, um, but I really think this is a general comment that people need to. If they're going to come in and say, I want, to, I want to be the chief executive, or I want to have decision-making power in the direction of the city, they should know a, a lot about the city.
2: I think that's fair enough.
0: <laughs> Colleen, this
2: was actually very informative. I appreciate your time. I ex- appreciate you explaining your positions. There's so much that is said about you, read about you. And I've really been curious to try to get a better understanding of who you are and what you represent, and I think we've done that here today. I think you provided a lot of clarity, and I just appreciate you being here for that. As we end the program, what is your call to action to the listeners?
0: Organize for the next election. Start now. I mean, if...
2: It sounds like you're running for mayor. I ba- feel like no, you're doing but listen, it. Listen, <laughs> every time
0: every every week I do another neighborhood meeting and what I hear in every neighborhood is is deep disf- dissatisfaction at the direction the city's taking. And I hear from countless people that say, I you know, I just can't see how I'm gonna stay. I'm gonna have to leave. I'm so concerned about that at and a you know, a really profound level. And um, I just think it's it's important that we start organizing at the neighborhood level. Um, what I hear a lot is you know we everything's thematic you know it was it was the bike lobby or it's uh defund the police or it's uh, abundant housing. these are all themes around uh, areas of interest in the city right special mm-hmm. interests. what I don't hear a lot about are the people in the neighborhoods and how they're how they're responding to the change and what they want to see happening in their neighborhoods. And as I described to you earlier, what I've been doing is saying, well, look, if, if change is the only constant, we're going to grow. We want to have an influence on what that growth looks like. If we're going to add another 500 or 1,000 people or dwelling units in your neighborhood, where do we put them? What's, how, do, how do they fit? How, how does this all work within your the nuance of your individual neighborhood? and I think people are really attached to where they live and they they know that things are not going to stay the same and they want to make sure that they're shaped in a way that is considerate and and thoughtful going forward that is uh, lest I use the word over overuse the word in balance
1: mm-hmm.
0: so uh, that's what I think, I think people need to to start to take local government more seriously. We only have about a 40% turnout yeah. typically in, in <laughs> municipal elections, and that number should increase because I think people just don't realize how important decisions are made at a local level and how they impact their daily lives.
2: Absolutely. And I 100% agree. I think it's sad that So many people focus on like U.S. politics and all these other things that don't affect their day-to-day lives and local politics and interest in local politics I think is important and I really do hope that more people get involved, more people just pay attention. And it goes back to even, you know, the board. I think the idea of the NPA board of where it is today is because of people not being engaged. You know, even NPA voters not being engaged in the party that they that they vote for. So I, I agree with you there. I think that's a good message to end off on. I appreciate your time. Thanks for being here.
0: That was great. I hope, uh, I, hope I turned uh, your attitude around a little bit. Uh, if you had any preconceived notions about I I had no preconceived
2: notions. No, I appreciate you being here. So thank you very much. Great. Thanks a lot. People, whatever said and done, she is a force, and you can't deny that she is very popular with some segments of the city of Vancouver. And I think in a lot of ways, as I said at the top, she is one of the most fascinating personalities in Vancouver politics today, a third-generation civic politician in Vancouver. She is Vancouver City Councilor Colleen Hardwick. And I am Moamir telling you that in a city where you can be anything, be colorful. Peace.